Hey guys, sorry, I don't mean to go all FDR on you or anything, but here's the new deal. All the interviews are now going up first at scotthortonshow.substack.com. Of course, they'll all be going up at scotthorton.org the next day, and the archives going back to 1999 will still be free for you there at scotthorton.org. But I got to generate revenue, you know. All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Aaron, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. All right, you guys, on the line, I've got Ben McElvey. He is an Australian journalist and author of many books. The latest is Find, Fix, and Finish from Tampa to Afghanistan. Welcome to the show. How are you doing, Ben? Good, Scott. How are you? Very good. Uh, Very happy to have you on the show. Uh, really an impressive book, and I've read a lot of books about Afghanistan. Um, Thanks, man. I appreciate that. So, yeah, and you know what? It's kind of over now, and it's a bit of a relief. wasn't sure how I felt about reading another book about Afghanistan now. I'm so happy to be done with it, but uh, I was very happy to read this. It's a very important book, and I do hope that people will take a look at it. All about Australia's special forces in yes. the Afghan war there. And, of course, uh, regular listeners to this show are very familiar with uh, at least some stories from Australia's war in Afghanistan. And uh, we'll be talking about Braden Chapman and his story uh, here pretty soon. In fact, let's start with that. You know, I'm really proud of the fact that Dan McKnight, after reading my book, Fool's Aaron, decided he wanted to found BringOurTroopsHome.us and has pushed to defend the guard legislation since then and all of that. But my other real proud one from Fool's Aaron is Braden Chapman, mm. the Australian Special Forces officer who, or I forget if he was an officer now, but anyway, member who read that book and decided, that's it, I'm blowing the whistle and telling the truth. At least I think that's the way I remember him telling me the story. <laughs> so he read that book and decided that he was going to do something about it now. So, um, And he does make a small appearance in your book in testifying against... Um, I'm not exactly sure who all in these uh, civilian libel trials, I guess, um, over war crimes accused uh, by he and others in uh, in the special forces there. So maybe we can start with that. Tell us what you know about the great Braden Chapman and in fact, including where is he now and how's he doing? Well, actually, I don't know much about Braden. He's not someone that I spoke to in the book, uh, but he, as you said, he was a whistleblower here in Australia. So he was an he was an, um, an electronic warfare operator. Uh, so he's a signaller, which was a pretty essential role uh, in um, in the Australian Special Forces operations, especially the kill capture operations, which is which are the things that are detailed in the book. So. He's the guy that had uh, the piece of equipment that would go out with the SAS teams and figure out using uh, direction finding, so usually mobile phones, figure out where the target was 
And then they'd go and find the target, whoever had that mobile phone, the uh, rules of engagement allowed that person to be killed without any attempt at capture. So these were, you know, essentially targeted killings if the prosecuting force chose them to be targeted killings. Um, and that was kind of at the heart of, of the problem with the, the Australian Special Forces mission because there, there's a big case that's, uh, that's going on at the moment. Um, so the case is closed. Uh, it is a defamation case um, with a guy called Ben Robert Smith who is, uh, is he's one of, he's probably the most notable Australian soldier. He was awarded the Victoria Cross. He became a, uh, an executive at, tel at a television station. He's got great visibility. Um, and then there are accusations that uh, he committed a number of murders. Um, but the, the fuzzy line in that case is whether, or whether they were targeted killings or whether they were, you know, an extension of what they were doing. Um, but Braden was a whistleblower for, for the ABC, which is our public broadcaster, um, and he alleged and it was proven that uh, at least some of those killings were murders. They were people who were always to combat, so they couldn't be targeted. Um, and uh, yeah, I think I think he probably just got to the point where he morally he couldn't reconcile with the things that had happened, so he just had to go forward. Mm -hmm. And now, how many criminal convictions do we have of special forces operators there? We have none. We have none. There's been there's been a lot of conversation about it. There's been a lot of media around it. Um, especially because Ben Robert Smith is one of the people that in the media has been accused. We have a thing called the Office of the Special Investigator, which uh, is it's a, it's a federal entity that is looking at these allegations of murder because we had this thing called the Brereton Report, which is an internal defence report. Um, and the Brereton Report alleged that there, was, uh, that there were 39 murders and those murders are being investigated and some other murders. Um, but that's sort of happening at the moment. So the only thing that we have at the moment is this defamation case. Hmm. All right. And then, so in the defamation case, that's the media accused this guy, Ben Robert Smith, and he's, I guess, you know, supposedly the kind of most famous poster boy for the Australian military over there. Uh, sort yeah. of the, I don't know if there's an equivalent here, I'd say Petraeus, but he's a big loser general who everybody yeah. despises. But this is the guy who, Say if Patrick Tillman had not been killed in Afghanistan or something, yeah. this is a guy that stature, right? Everybody's uh, favorite uh, enlisted hero kind of guy, and then now it's he's being like accused. Of, I'm sorry, go ahead. You know Jocko? Yeah, Jocko Willing. Well, I didn't want to bring him up, but that's a good example. It would be it would be as though if uh, Jocko Willing, who's now America's most famous retired Navy SEAL, was accused of all these war crimes. It is. And, you know, the interesting thing about Ben Robert Smith is because he's been so visible, you know, the SAS have this thing called protected identity status in Australia. So um, their identities can't be revealed in the media. They generally don't um, reveal their own identity because they do this counterterrorism work in Australia as well, not just the, the gunfighting in Afghanistan. Um, but because Ben had uh, was awarded the Victoria Cross, you know, he went and met the Queen. He was very visible. Some other people have been awarded the Victoria Cross, but Ben, he, he sort of, he looks like a G.I. Joe, you know, he's, he's either six foot six or six foot seven. He's massive. He's very muscular. He's got very striking tattoos. And then not just that, he became an executive at a television station. Um, so, you know, he, he has the highest visibility of anyone in Australia, in the, in the Australian military. Uh, he's retired now. And now he's going through this, uh, you know, this, this series of allegations that he committed uh, murders, the, the media is alleging that he committed murders. 
and then he's come back and sued them for defamation. And, you know, it's, it's a unique case in, in Australian law because there's never been anything that's been this complex and this big before. So just the legal costs, which will have to be covered by whoever loses this, this case, will be sort of perhaps 20 to, to $50 million. So it's, it's not something that somebody would be able to do privately, but because he's got the backing of this television station, there's these two big media organisations bashing against each other, then it's going forward and it just went on forever and ever and ever and, you know, endless KCs, which are, which are King's Council lawyers, you know, super expensive. And, and it's been, that case has been very visible here in Australia as well. And now it's been rested now and it's up to the jury to decide as a press time here or how's that? It, it's a, it's a um, judge case. Oh, okay. So uh, the judge has retired and he's going to give his interim ruling. We think maybe the end of this year, uh, beginning of next year, but uh, we don't really know because like I said, it's unprecedented in Australian law. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I don't want to get you and uh, Harper Collins sued for defamation here, but you do a pretty thorough job of portraying the testimony against this guy officially and unofficially and the stories about what happened here. Is it fairly well substantiated that he had committed some murders here? I think some well, of these, at least one or two of these are the same ones that Braden talked about, aren't they? No. So Braden was involved in, Braden was part of another, another squad. Okay. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I really couldn't say with Ben Robert Smith's case, uh, you know, for legal purposes, but, but also just because, you know, having, Having sat down and uh, and listened to all the testimony, you know there was lots of guys who were accusing him of murder, but then there was lots of guys who were saying that they were there and it didn't happen as well. So I try to present both cases, um, and you know, you sort of got to let the, uh, the the court sort of figure things out. There was uh, a lot of testimony that we weren't able to see as the public because, you know, a lot of the satellite stuff, the drone imagery. Um, the stuff that Braden does on the ground, that electronic warfare operations stuff and, you know, hoovering up phone conversations and things like that, that's all sensitive information. So I actually have a sneaking suspicion that the case may um, till one way or another um, in closed court, which is something that we don't have access to. Yeah, well, um, I'm not sure if, uh, what they would do with a case like this in the United States. Um have you, had any, um, have you had any war crimes convictions from uh, Afghanistan? I know there was, yes. Uh, uh, oh, from Afghanistan? I do not believe so. There were a couple low-level ones from Iraq. There was Stephen yeah. Green, I believe was his name, who had, was the rapist who had, uh, raped and murdered the 14-year-old girl and her family in Iraq, was convicted. Um, there was the special operations officer, Gallagher, was um, oh, yes, of course. Uh, was tried, but I think acquitted or got off, overturned on appeal or something. I forgot exactly. He was uh, actually operating um, very close to Australians uh, mm-hmm. in, in in Mosul. Yeah, in fact, I got uh, uh, about 30 pages to the end of this thing. I was right at the part where you talk about how these guys went to Iraq War Three there to fight ISIS as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the interesting thing about the case here in Australia, as distinct to the, 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 the cases that have, have happened in the States is that um, the things that are being alleged, you know, are un- undoubtedly murders, but they're so close to what uh, our special forces were, were mandated to do anyway. Um, and that's, that's the thing that's sort of lost a little bit in the, in the Australian media is that the way that it's being characterised is that these, there's these bad apples that sort of went out and, and did something horrible. But it's like, no, 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 the war was horrible. And then they were pretty close to what we were doing legally. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I mean, I think that's really right. And that's, I mean, the difference between in one story, you tell the guys throw grenades into a room where they can mm -hmm. hear women and children screaming in there and they go ahead and they're investigated and, and charged, I think even, but then the charges are dropped because how dare you second guess these guys. And then really how different is that from laying a guy down on the ground and putting two in the back of his head? It's the same difference. Yeah, well, I mean, the interesting thing about that case is that, you know, there were people who said that the women and children could be heard. There were people who said that they couldn't. Um, they were actually charged. This sort of went through the um, the military criminal criminal system, and eventually the thing was rolled, was was um, was thrown out of court because there was a ruling that that the Australians the Australian forces cannot give a duty of care to any Afghan in a, in a in, in, a, in, a, in a wartime situation, um, which was a very contentious ruling um, because it, it essentially says that, you know, short of murdering Afghans, any death of an Afghan in, you know, in, in, a, in an area where the Australian Special Forces were operating is legal, you know. So um, things, that are, things that would be considered to be manslaughter previously could not be considered illegal in Afghanistan as by this ruling. Hmm. Duty of care. And that was just made up. That was a, a new invention of this court. Essentially, almost like the Supreme Court has ruled in America over and over again, like after the Parkland shooting, that the police have no duty to protect you, even your child, if your child is being massacred and a cop is standing right there. He has no duty yeah. to intervene. In this case, it's, it's even further, it sounds like they're saying they have no duty to not kill somebody if they are yeah, I mean, adjacent to a war zone somehow. Yeah. So the, 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 the Parkland ruling, as, as I understand it, is that you have to be, you don't have to be proactive. Whereas this ruling is like, even if you are the one who is activating the violence, you, you don't owe a duty of care. You know, as, as long as you are, um, as long as you're operating under your obligations of international humanitarian law, so you're not executing people, um, you know, it's just it's just sort of bad luck that this war sort of came to your town. In other words, so anything short of that, that would be how that in opinion would be read. Anything short of putting somebody on their knees and just capping them in the back of the head would count as, hey, things happen. Yeah, so like you know, within the within the defence judiciary system, you can be charged with you know a range of offences. But then outside of that, um, then there's 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 no legal framework for for you to be charged. I would imagine that that's that that's what that ruling says. Yeah, uh, no controlling legal authority, as Al Gore would have said. Yes, I think that's true. Um, all right, so now let's rewind. Talk. Uh, go back to the beginning here. Um, well, not the very beginning because. You know, we all know about the initial invasion in Tora Bora. I guess, you know, we could mention that the Australians were there, but also were not allowed to go and help at Tora Bora, along with everybody else who was not allowed to go and help at Tora Bora. That's, That's true. an interesting footnote there. I also thought, actually, it was important that you wrote in here about how, yep, and then the Air Force bombed them for almost a week. Yeah, in other words, they didn't bomb them for the last eight days before they escaped. They called mm -hmm. off the bombing long before December 17th when Osama bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri got away, right? Yeah, I mean, I think they were certainly trying to, to kill the al-Qaeda members. I just think that uh, 
they, they didn't really have an understanding of what warfare was going to look like in, in Afghanistan. You know, there, 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 were, there, were, there were always limitations with an air campaign, a purely an air campaign, even though the technology migrated through the war and then, and then through to, like, as you said, the, the war against ISIS. But, you know, the reason why Afghanistan became such a dirty war is because it's very difficult to have a distinction between um, who the enemy were and who the populace were. And if you're just bombing from the air, you know, you don't have any bomb damage assessment, you don't have a, a great understanding of, of what the impact is, you know, of, 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 of what you've actually done. So you have to have a ground force and then that just becomes a mess. Yeah. Well, I read it more like they bombed for a little while and they knew that they were risking accidentally killing Osama bin Laden, but they had to put on some kind of show of pretending to try to get him for a minute. But then when the I Green Berets and the Rangers and the Marines all asked to get involved and seal the border, they were denied, no matter how much the Delta Force and CIA begged for reinforcements there. So, so. you think that uh, you think that the, the hand of Pakistan was in that decision making? Well, I mean... At one point, when the Taliban offered to negotiate uh, extradition, Musharraf refused when, mm. he, when he was offered to hand him over to the Pakistanis. I think that was probably at American behest. But it's clear that the, the American CIA in, in Pakistan had arranged deconfliction with the Pakistani army and the Frontier Corps to make sure that when the Delta Force invariably chases al-Qaeda across the border, we want to make sure we don't hit our own friends in the Delta Force here. So we have all yeah. our deconfliction lines set up and everything. And then what happened? They treated the Pakistani border, a border into a friendly country with a friendly cooperative military uh -huh. and treated it like it was hyperspace and like it was this impermeable membrane that once yeah. Osama bin Laden stepped foot on foot across that border, that there was nothing the Delta Force or Special Activities Division of the CIA could possibly do to simply mm. walk after him and shoot him. And they were forbidden from trying. And the CIA and the Delta Force, you know, you quote uh, Tom Greer there, but he wrote a whole book called yeah. Kill Bin Laden about how they begged over and over and over and over again for permission to do their job and they were denied. And we also know from Bush at War by Bob Woodward, where he just mm. publishes straight text from the notes taken during the National Security Council meetings, where they're very clear that they don't want this war to end too soon. And they're worried that if bin Laden is killed, somehow the Americans will get the idea that we won the war home by Christmas. Mm. That's what you get for messing with us. But we want the American people to know this war is going to last through time and space. Maybe we should start bombing Baghdad right now so that they mm. don't get the wrong idea that even if we do kill bin Laden, that we have somehow won the war. And then Bush, the president, announces... Well, as long as bin Laden is on the run, then I'm satisfied. In other words, the manhunt against him is canceled. We're going after the Taliban instead of al-Qaeda. Those were the mm. orders of the treasonous commander-in-chief. And that was no accident. And when, the, when Gary Bernson, the CIA officer on the scene, says, we begged over and over and over for reinforcements and we just couldn't understand why we couldn't get them. And then the next three paragraphs are all blacked out. That's because that's where George Bush is a traitor. Allowing bin Laden to escape so he can serve, deliberately escape, so he can serve as an Emmanuel Goldstein boogeyman figure. How are they supposed to make your mom afraid 
that Saddam Hussein is going to give chemical weapons to Osama bin Laden if Osama bin Laden's already dead. Yeah. So they needed him out there to scare the American people, and for that matter, the Australian people, into an aggressive war in Iraq. It was as deliberate as it could be. And you even have in the book, James Mattis is standing there with 4,000 Marines in Kandahar doing nothing. Mm. Why isn't he standing on the Pakistani border? Because Bush wouldn't let him. And uh, in the book, we do detail the uh, the attempted surrender of, of Mullah Omar and Mullah Omar's secretary. When, uh, oh, yeah, Jason please Emmer- tell that story. I'll, uh, now that I've talked for five minutes, you please tell that because it's such an important story for people to understand. No, I'm intrigued to, to, to hear your perspective as well, Scott. But um, well, It's in my book in too, book, but go man, ahead. <laughs> yeah, I, uh, One of the things that I tried to do in the book is uh, Australia primarily operated in a, a province called Uruzgan, which is uh, a place where, where the, a, lot of the, a lot of the leading Taliban originated. Um, and when Hamid Karzai secreted back into the country after the initial invasion in, in, in October 2001, uh, he went in with a team of Green Berets and his idea was that if they took Tarankot, which was the, the provincial capital in Uruzgan, which is a, a pretty small place and Uruzgan's a pretty small province as well, but he figured that if they managed to take Uruzgan, then the, the sort of, the, uh, there'd be a sort of house of cards effect where the Taliban would feel like ideologically they're defeated so that they could sort of force a surrender straight away in 2001, 2002 in that period. Um, and they managed to do that. They sent in an ODA, which uh, I think was only about 20 guys with, um, with a couple of, of CIA guys attached. And there was a large Taliban force that came to, to Tarankot to try and to try and kill Karzai and to, to try and sort of knock off these Americans that were trying to create a southern front. Using air power, they killed most of most of these, these Taliban, which were primarily Pakistani Taliban. And then they sort of worked their way, wended their way down to um, the border in Kandahar. And as they were doing that, uh, a Taliban force came to them and they were, one of them was um, Mullah Bereda, who is one of the leaders in, in Afghanistan now. And he was then... Um, he was then Mullah Omar's uh, sort of personal secretary, and they attempted a surrender. So they they essentially said, "All that we want is is to is to basically live our, our rural lives, you know, in 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 a manner that we see as dignity. You know, we're, we're sort of happy to lay down our arms and and disband the Taliban, but um, it was refused. You know, and, and I spoke to to David Kilcullen, who is a famous Australian strategist who worked uh, who worked with Petraeus actually. And he called that the original sin. He said that that was, that was Afghanistan's original sin. You know, there was an opportunity. It was the first opportunity. It wasn't the last opportunity to end the war, but there was a choice not to. And I think that probably uh, Rumsfeld personally was agitating for, for the war to continue at that, at that stage. Yeah. Oh, it's just amazing, the quote, that the United States is not apt to negotiate surrenders exactly. right now. Well, what does that yeah. mean? Surrender is not good enough? Now, yeah. I mean, the whole thing is, hey, unconditional surrender. Fine. But then we got that. But then, no, we're not even going to accept your surrender. We're just going to hunt and kill all of you. Yeah, I mean, and the thing about that is the even after that, you know, from a, from a strategic perspective, it was reasonable to assume that the Taliban could be destroyed and they were destroyed. But once you start agitating the populace, once you start, you know, installing these criminal governors, which they did in uh, in Uruzgan, then the populace just kind of get they get shut off. And then. Um, you know, the, like the Taliban, they were they were to a certain extent a sort of decentralized force. They were more of an idea, and people were like, look, we hate the Americans, you know. But 
we hate the Taliban, but we, we kind of hate the Americans more because of the, these people that they've installed and our lives are actually getting worse, which we've been told constantly that uh, our lives were, were going to get better. And one of, the, one of the quotes that I really thought was, was sort of fascinating in the book was there was a guy who was working for the Human Rights Commission, Afghan, Afghan guy that lives in Australia now, and he came in and set up this, um, this thing called the Afghan Independent Commission for Human Rights in Tarankot. And, you know, the, the, the American idea of the war in Afghanistan was that they were bringing human rights to the, to the Afghans. You know, this is the thing that we're doing, you know, in the telling, telling Afghans constantly, we're bringing you human rights, we're bringing you human rights. And then this guy brings, this, this Afghan guy brings this, um, this American-backed Human Rights Commission to Tarankot. They set up a town, uh, set up a little office, and everyone turns up and they're like, oh, great, finally, human rights are here. Can you, you know, can you go and get the Americans who've committed human rights atrocities here? Can we prosecute them? Same with the Australians, the Dutch, you know, the Taliban, you know, the governor, all this sort of stuff. They sort of, like, explain what had happened with these, with these human rights transgressions. And this poor guy is like, you know, what do you think human rights is? We can't do this. <laughs> there has to be some sort of some sort of activation. There has to be some sort of big stick, you know. And so then they just get dragged back into the the real politic of of Afghanistan again, where it's you know whoever's got the arms, whoever's got the, the you know the most henchmen sort of runs things. And then that's when people became particularly disillusioned because they realised that uh, you know there was a disconnect between the things that they were being told about human rights and and you know what the Americans and, and Australians and the Dutch could do. And what was actually happening on the ground. Mm -hmm. Sorry, hang on just one second. Hey, y'all, Scott Horton here for Tennessee Hot Sauce Company. Man, this stuff is so good. They get all different flavors. Garlic habanero, honey habanero, pineapple habanero, poblano jalapeno, and the blood orange ghost. They're all so good, I swear. And for a limited time, Tennessee Hot Sauce Company is featuring official Scott Horton Hotter Than The Sun thermonuclear hot sauce. It's full of Carolina Reapers, Scorpion Peppers, Dr. Pepper, Hydrogen Isotopes, and all kinds of things that'll burn your tongue clean off. Seriously, it's really good. Get yourself a hot sauce subscription. Spend $40 or more and use promo code SCOTT to get a free bottle of Hotter Than The Sun hot sauce. That's tnhotsauceco.com. Hey, y'all gotta check out these awesome busts of our hero, the great Ron Paul. They're made by the renowned sculptor Rick Casali. They're 13 inches tall, hand-painted bronze resin based on Casale's brilliant original. Y'all may have seen mine in the background on my bookshelf in some recent interviews. The thing is unbelievable. Check out this incredible piece of art at rickcasale.com slash ronpaul and you'll see what I mean. Use promo code Horton and you'll save 25 bucks. And this show will get a little kickback too. That's rickcasale.com slash ronpaul. Casale is C-A-S-A-L-I rickcasali.com slash ron paul and there's free shipping too so now we're in uh Uruzgan province here on and off throughout the whole war but that was basically the one and only area where the australians were operating is that right well that's where the australian base was and that oh, was I the see. place where we had a sort of legal mandate but then you know the australian special forces ended up fighting all across uh, southern afghanistan which is where most of the insurgency was happening the south the south and the east so in canada they did a lot of helmen in helmen they did a lot of anti-drug missions there was a force called the second commando regiment which is an australian fighting force and they did a lot of <clears throat> a lot of work with the dea over in uh, Helmand, and then the SAS were in Kandahar doing targeting missions, which was, you know, sort of capture, kill, 
hunting missions. That's interesting, the story you tell about how they teamed up with the DEA, because they needed helicopters, and the DEA needed some violent authority, so they just came up with this ad hoc thing, but then it's not altogether clear the way you write it, Ben, but it sounds like you're saying that they're just flying around killing farmers in their fields in the name of well, I mean, poppy wars. You know, they, they were... They were, they were fighting against the people who were shooting at them, but the people who were shooting at them were probably quite often people who have just been told by a drug lord to, to protect the crop. Um, you know, so that, that, was, that was part of the problem is that, you know, as you know, um, the opium poppy is the, is the sort of the, the number one cash crop in Afghanistan. And a lot, of the, a lot of the internal tensions in Afghanistan are over water capture and over, you know, access to markets and things like that. Um, and so if you wanted to win the war, you actually had to mediate all of these local disputes between these tribes. Um, but then we managed to sort of overlay over the top of that this eradication program where some of the drug producers were being targeted because they were unfriendly with the governors who were, you know, who'd been installed and who a lot of them were crooks and, you know, Karzai's, uh, Karzai's brother-in-law actually and, and, and people like that. Um, so then we sort of create this, this violence and the, the, the Australian mandate was that we could only attack these drug producing areas if they were to lessen the insurgency. So that's why they were called counter nexus operations, because the idea was that the insurgency was being fueled by this drug trade. And if mm -hmm. we destroyed this drug trade, then the insurgency had sort of lessened, but it was, it, it you know, like everything else, it was, it was done haphazardly you know the, the 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 management of how that was actually going to lead into um uh, less money for the insurgency was, was 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 sort of amateurish at best and it just ended up being just a lot of people getting killed and some drugs being being destroyed but um but no less output across the border um and into like europe and the us and australia and, and drug markets yeah well you know, it's funny because that's sort of just another way of saying that if the heroin fields are owned by our guys, we don't do anything. We only yeah. go after the heroin that's being raised, you know, for the, by the other guy. And even then, you put them out of business, you're just putting a bunch of guys with no other job to do but fighting the insurgency now before they were farming poppies. Now they join the insurgency, yeah. so you're screwed either way trying that. And but thing, it's really eliminating the competition for our local friendly warlords, right? That definitely happened. And one of the things that happened as well is when we started attacking, you know, sort of enemy poppy fields, then people defaulted on their land loans. When they defaulted on their land loans, they, they had to sell their daughters. And a lot of these guys who didn't want to do that migrated over to Pakistan. And that, these, are, these were some of the super hardcore Taliban guys who it happened to them uh, in the early stages of the war. They went over to Pakistan, madrasas, um, and then they, you know, they, they activated their own sort of local militia and they came back and they, they became some of, the, some of the sort of significant anti-coalition militia fighters uh, in Afghanistan. What a horror show. Um, and now you say in the book that overall, uh, the, at least officially, the Australian Special Forces claim about 11,000 kills. Right? Well, yeah, I mean, it, it's not something that's sort of publicly spoken about, but uh, that number came from uh, a guy that I was talking to who's a, a regimental sergeant major uh, in private, and he said, this was our internal number, you know. And I, I just couldn't believe it because what we've been told publicly is that, um, you know, the, the Australians were in, were in a limited amount of fighting but, but not a significant amount. We had 41 combat deaths, and I was like, surely there can't be 11,000 Afghan deaths. But, uh, you know, that number was um, was 
was published in a book that was approved by Special Operations Command. And then there's a, a, a Special Forces major who's become a politician here. And, you know, he cited that number a number of times. So I, I believe that that is the number. Hmm. And now, um, so this is what I was trying to think of before when we were talking about the civil suits and the criminal investigations is there was this IG report that you cite. I'm going yes. back over my notes now. <laughs> um, where and, and he claimed uh, to have identified 39 murders, outright murders, yeah. by 25 yeah. different soldiers. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's right. Yeah, it's called the Brereton Report. So we've we've had this sort of, you know, drip, drip, drip of information since 2014, 2015, that there may have been some murders uh, in Afghanistan. And then the whole thing eventually, um, you know, the the... The noise became so loud that they had to do this big internal report and then it was published in 2020. It was called the Brereton Report, um, <laughs> alleging that there were 39 murders. Um, but then in that report, which is pretty detailed and it's public if anyone wants to go and have a look at it, just just um, just Google the Brereton Report, uh, it says that there's no command responsibility for any of these murders, which the book tries to detail that you know, perhaps commanders and politicians didn't know exactly that there were murders going on, but it was it was reasonable for them to go and do more investigating to have an understanding of what was actually happening in Afghanistan. There was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of sort of don't ask, don't tell, um, plausible deniability, just not wanting to know what was happening in Afghanistan, and that was that was one of the significant problems in Australia. Mm-hmm. All right, now. Um... Tell us about Jan Mohammed and his son. His um, nephew. Oh, his nephew. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> so Jan Mohammed is like, I mean, he's dead now, but he was he was he was like an old school power broker in Afghanistan. You know, there was there was a period where he was anti Taliban before two thousand one. There was a time when he was Taliban two thousand one. You know, it, it's a very porous thing in Uruzgan as to whether you're part of the Taliban or not, you know, because it's basically where the prevailing um, political winds are blowing. And so he's someone that has always managed to have this power or had always had managed to have this power within southern Uruzgan, whether in, in, in southern Afghanistan and in Uruzgan. And he was, he was a guy that um, he knew Hamid Karzai's father and Karzai's father was always like, you have to listen to Jan Muhammad because that's how Afghanistan actually works in the rural areas. So when Karzai came and was installed as, um, as the president of the country, he made Jan Muhammad the, um, the governor of Uruzgan. And straight away, he just, Jan Muhammad just saw it as this blank check opportunity for him. You know, he wasn't a particularly talented politician in post-2001, but he was someone who was pretty good at enriching himself and using then, especially the American Special Forces, to sort of hunt and kill his enemies, his tribal enemies in Uruzgan. And, you know, he enriched himself as as much as he possibly could until 2005 when ISAF reorganised and the Dutch came in. The Dutch were running things in Uruzgan with the Australians. And he said, uh, the the Dutch said, look, we can't work with John Muhammad. You know, this place is going to be, there'll be an insurgency for 100 years if people like John Muhammad are running this place. So he ended up getting booted and he went to Kabul and he was eventually knocked off by the Taliban. Um, But his nephew sort of assumed power. He didn't, he wasn't handed power, but he he was a much more talented politician than Jan Muhammad. So he became the head of this police force, this uh, transport police force, um, who were protecting this thing called Root Bear, which goes from Tarankot to, um, to Kandahar City. 
And, you know, he was setting up tolls and he was making sure that every time the Americans bought construction materials through that they'd have to pay him a certain amount of money. Otherwise, those uh, construction um, uh, convoys could be attacked, possibly by, by Matiola. This guy's called Matiola. Matiola's uh, a man. So he, was, he, was a, he, he ended up being the power broker in Uruzgan, but he was a much more talented politician. And he had a greater understanding of the sort of the post-2001 politics of working with the Australians and the Americans. And there's an estimate in the book that he may have ended up earning a, about $100 million from the Americans and the Australians to paying these protection fees and, you know, whatever it is. And he put that money into, into a, you know, that money was spread around Uruzgan to, to sort of ingratiate the populace, but then also to build up his own militia. And he, he, was, he was a real problem in Afghan, in Uruzgan because he was, he was an entrenched local power broker who sort of did some of the right things, but with someone like Matiola in power, you could never have this sort of political equanimity that you required for peace. So you couldn't get rid of him, um, but then he sort of had to have him as well. And then eventually, you know, he was killed when the whole thing fell apart and, and, and you know, Uruzgan is what it is now. It's, it's a very sort of tribally fractious place where the Taliban, you know, have some influence and I'm sure there's a lot of fighting going on and I'm sure there will be a lot of fighting for a long, long time to come. Yeah. You know, it's funny if you just ask the average Australian or American to put their shoe on the other foot for one second. Hey, what if the Afghans invaded and took over our country and then put a bunch of child rapists and murderers in charge as our police chiefs and mayors and governors? Why, we would probably shoot at them and plant landmines in their way until they left, wouldn't we? Yeah, I mean, that's that, that was a sentiment that I got a lot from um, the Australian Special Forces that I was working with. They were like, you know, um, they, they had a real hatred for the insurgents, especially the Taliban, you know. Like, the thing about the Taliban is the Taliban were awful, but to win the war, we had to present a, a face of government that was better than the idea that the Taliban was presenting. And the Taliban were awful, but at least they were local, you know, so the locals could kind of understand why the Taliban were doing the things that they were doing, but they didn't understand why we were doing the things that we were doing. So we had this blanket of secrecy and we'd be doing these JPL raids. I mean, my book's about, about JPL, about the kill capture program, mm -hmm. you know, so they'd come in and they would have had this signals intelligence. They'd have this, you know, uh, They've been listening to somebody's phone and they know that this guy was a bomb maker and he's bringing bombs in. But the local populace don't know that. So in the middle of the night, you know, some guys blow in some, you know, Australian SAS or DevGrew or whoever it is. You know, they shoot him, they shoot some other people, they take off. And for the populace, they just don't understand why that's happened, you know. So they were just like, well, these people are the worst. This is terrible. Plus we've got, like you said, you know, these governors that are these child rapists and these drug runners and stuff like that. So they'd be like, well, why don't we just side with the insurgency, you know? And public information was a real problem in Afghanistan, I think. And, and, um, and what we were doing, you know, we, we weren't telling the populace here in Australia because it was politically expedient not to tell people, but then we weren't telling people in Afghanistan what we're doing either. So that's why there ended up being so much, um, so much public sentiment for the, for the insurgency. Mm. Well, you know, um, I think in both of our books, we cite Anand Gopal for a yeah. lot of his great work there. And, you know, incredible work. Yeah. And of course, No Good Man Among the Living is his great book. And he wrote a bunch that's of great it. articles for tomdispatch.com. And he wrote one that I believe came out right after the war ended 
about down in Helmand province and yeah. how I guess, you know, the major theme of the article was that there was this horrible, hated criminal murderer, rapist, torturer, killer, drug dealer, bad guy who the Taliban had liberated the Helmand province from. Yeah. And when the Americans came, the first thing they did was put this guy back in power. Yeah. It'd be like, you know, yeah. if you broke Henry Lee Lucas out of prison and put him in charge of Texas. Like, wait, this guy's a serial killer. We all hate him. What are you doing? I mean, that was the problem. The problem wasn't state building wasn't the thing that the Americans were doing. And then that's not what the Australians were doing, because the Australians were just trying to slavishly do whatever the Americans were doing. But the Americans ostensibly just had this counterterrorism mission in Afghanistan. And so even though, you know, like the place you're talking about, which um, I think is the, the, the capital of Helmand or just outside of the capital, you know, so that they think that they're running this, this counterterrorism uh, operation. So they're like, okay, well, we need counterterrorism partners. And it's like, okay, well, these brutal guys who are going to chase the Taliban and try and kill them, they're the people that we want to be with. And everything else that they do, you know, it's just an externality, you know, like that's not what we're doing. It's, you know, it sucks for the people over there, but uh, that's that's what we want to do. And that's one of the things that I was thinking about when I was writing the book is is, is essentially what we did is there, would, there was going to be a small amount of violence in certain places post 9-11, during 9-11, you know, the counterterrorism um, mission was to stop violent acts happening in places like the US, Australia and Europe. And so what we did is we externalised this violence, but then we sort of maximised it. So, you know, hundreds of thousands of people died in Iraq and Afghanistan to make sure that hundreds weren't going to die in places like Sydney, New York, London, places like that. But I think that they actually, you know, that, that there's been more terrorist attacks in Europe in sort of 2015, 16, 17, 18 than there, than there were the sort of 10 or 20 years leading up to that. So... Even that didn't work. Even that sort of minimization of violence here and maximization of violence over there didn't work either. So, right. you know, the strategy was a problem throughout the war and, and, and partnering with these, you know, these, these awful um, warlords was, was, was something that was definitely counterproductive. Yeah. Well, and, you know, if you take all the domestic terror attacks in America and you subtract out all of the kind of hoaxes perpetrated by the FBI, but you just look at the yeah. actual ones... There are some actual ones and we just, you know, the San Bernardino, I guess, was the very worst of them, but there was the Fort Hood massacre. There was the guy that blew up, I think, trash cans along a, a racetrack um, uh, path on some sidewalks in New York and New Jersey. There was the guy uh, from Denver who wanted to blow up the subways in New York. And mm. um, I was going to say the cartoon contest, but no, that was an FBI frame up job. But anyway, um, you know, that's that's pretty bad, too. Now, luckily, we haven't had a September 11th type of a thing. But that goes to show, though, that, you know, all of these guys were young, new recruits. Um, you know, Omar Mateen, the Orlando shooter and uh, the guy that did those New York attacks, uh, the New Jersey, New York sidewalk attacks. I talked about these are young guys, Americans radicalized yeah. by not even Bush's wars, but by Obama's wars in mm. this, you know, later part of the terror wars before they went and did their. And in fact, I should have said Mateen was worse than San Bernardino. I forgot Orlando for a moment there. But anyway, mm -hmm. so we've had some real ones too. And of course, as you're referring to the horrible massacres in France, all are a direct result of backing and then bombing the jihadists in the war in Syria and Iraq War Three, and all of that. So 
um, you know, yeah, you, you're certainly right that if the goal was preventing terrorism, well, we sure got a lot of uh, Afghans blown up and a lot of Americans and Europeans, too. Um, and in fact, you know, by the way, talk about that for a minute, if you would, about how the Taliban actually did really resort to terrorism against civilians and against any collaborators with the Americans in some of the most heinous fashion in order to enforce their way. And you talk about, yeah. I think, especially in 2011, that we have, you know, America, you know, kills bin Laden and executes a bunch of raids all across Afghanistan. And the Taliban respond by just cutting throats all over the place in a way that the Americans are essentially just dumbfounded and can't do a thing about. I mean, that, that, that was the reason why they did it wasn't because it was a reaction to bin Laden. You know, I don't think they actually cared that much whether bin Laden died oh, I agree or not. with that. Yeah, I didn't mean yeah. to make too much of a causation there. <laughs> Go ahead. No, but, but I think what was happening was there was, you know, there was there was that famous uh, Obama speech in 2009 about the surge and then the retraction of American forces in uh, in Afghanistan. There's a story in the book with uh, David Kilcullen who was meeting with a couple of Taliban agents in Kabul um, in 2009 when that speech was given. And they're sitting in this they're sitting in this restaurant and they're chatting and uh, you know Obama gives this speech and these two Taliban say to kill Colin they start laughing and and they say are you trying to lose this war? He's like what do you mean? They said well you know you've said that there's going to be this surge but then eventually it says that the Americans are coming and I think at the time they were planning on leaving in uh, in July 2011. Um, and this Taliban agent said to David Kilcullen, you know you it's great. You guys are going to be here until July, but what are you going to do in August? You know, the Taliban are going to be out there talking to the populace. They'd be like, just remember that we're coming back into power. So when bin Laden was killed, I think, I think the Taliban had an understanding that the war was sort of winding down, that, that this was the Americans having an opportunity to, to say that they won the war, regardless of whether they won the war or not. At yeah. least they'd done, at least they'd achieved one of their goals. And so they could have killed people like that was when Matiullah Khan was killed um, that was when uh, I think the, the mayor of Kandahar was killed. You know, there was there was all of these sort of, you know, puppet figures. Um, I think they probably and could Wally have been Karzai killed. And Wally Karzai too, right? And, and yeah, Wally Karzai, yeah. exactly. Um, and I think these people may have been able to be gotten previously, but the Taliban's like, well, it doesn't really make sense for us to do it then because there was also a faction of the Taliban that wanted the war to continue because they were being paid. You know, they were... There were these large construction projects and they'd been um, outsourced to, to private companies. And these private companies want the contracts, but then they want to make sure they actually don't get paid until the, until the, the, the work's been completed. So they would actually approach the Taliban and say, you know, we like to do this work. You know, we're getting paid this amount of money. We'll give you this amount of money to, to make sure that the, the work can be done and then you can destroy whatever the project is afterwards. And that happened quite a lot. So there was a, you know, a faction of the Taliban that's like, we want this war to continue as long as possible. But then in 2011, bin Laden's killed. The, the Taliban are like, well, okay, this thing's winding down. We should probably start knocking off these power brokers so we can assume power relatively easily when the time comes, when the sort of money runs out. And that's the period that you're talking about. Yeah. By the way, there's a book by a guy named Douglas Wissing called Funding the Enemy. That's all about that. It's a whole book just on that yeah. subject. I have a sort of mini chapter in my book about it. He's got a whole book about the billions paid directly to the Taliban by way of these reconstruction projects. And some of it also protection money too, where, you know, for safe passage for goods and services and gasoline to the boys out on their bases. 
that then <laughs> they're going to fight them with, but they're getting paid and they figure it's worth it. I mean, that's, that's the problem about, about localized incentive structures. You know, if you have this sort of like overarching strategy and then everybody has an understanding of the way that that works and relates to this overarching strategy, then you're not going to have these localized incentive structures. But like you said, you know, if you're a, if you're a battalion commander and you're like, well, we just want to make sure that we get our food come through our petrol, you know, to make sure that we can keep going, you know, if we have to pay the Taliban, then my KPIs are, are sort of knocked off and how it relates to the overall strategy, you know, maybe that's a little bit iffy, but you know, the overall strategy just changed so quickly and so often. And, you know, sometimes it was muddled anyway that everyone's just like, well, I'm just going to do the thing that I have to do to, to sort of fulfil my obligations. And that was the problem with the Australian Special Forces. You know, they wanted to get these JPL jackpots as many as they could. You know, whether it related to peace or not, then, you know, it didn't really matter because I think a lot of people knew that we weren't going to win the war anyway from about 2009. Right. Yeah, should have known earlier than that, but... So, and by the way, you know, it's important to bring up here that David Kilcullen, he and his crew were the ones who said that we could win the war by July of 2011. So he doesn't get to blame this on Obama for making that deadline. Obama said to Petraeus, now you're telling me you'll have the Afghan army trained up and ready to stand in our space by July of 2011, huh? 18 months, is that right? And David Petraeus says, yes, sir, sir, and clicks his heels in the name of David Kilcullen and in the name of Fat Neck Fred Kagan and in the name of all of the, you know, General Jack Keane and all of the people who made their millions of dollars promoting that surge and pushing that mm -hmm. surge. And David Kilcullen was one of the ringleaders of not any counterinsurgency strategy. He was the ringleader of a PR campaign to expand that war. And it was his promise to Obama by way of Petraeus, we've got this thing licked. We'll have the Taliban on their knees eaten out of our hands by July of 2011. And Obama said, fine, then I accept that deadline then. July of 2011 it is. So I declare jihad on Kilcullen for trying to blame <laughs> Obama for his massive error in urging the tripling of that war and the killing of hundreds of thousands of extra people to no good end whatsoever when he knew good and well that Afghanistan is not Malaya and, and the U.S. is not the British and this is not going to work the way that he claimed. I bet that guy lives in a gigantic mansion by the ocean right now, doesn't he? Have you been to his house? I haven't been to his house. I'm not sure where, where he lives, actually. I think he lives in Colorado. Um, on top of a gigantic mountain. He, I'm, I'm sure on a he's, pile sure. of money. But in, in his defense, I think what Kilcullen had uh, in mind was that I think, I think he had a recognition that the only way that the war could end is um, a sort of uh, a political mediation. So I think the complete eradication of the Taliban uh, was was completely unfeasible, even even over generations. And so I think, given the the, the prevailing political winds, they're like, okay, well, this war can't go on for generations and generations. So what we have to do is we have to we have to kind of let the the Taliban. Um, ascend to a certain extent in Afghanistan. Maybe they won't be called the Taliban anymore, but we have to have this sort of political mediation. So I think the idea of the surge was to 
put themselves in a, in a political position where they could bring the Taliban in, but the Taliban wouldn't be um, in complete armed control. And then we could have this sort of um, mediated government, which would have been so much better than what we end up, ended up in, in 2020, 2021. So I think they were trying to, to get to this sort of, um, uh, this sort of tribal balance strategy where the Taliban were, were brought into the government, but then the existing government could work with the Taliban, which is something that was entirely possible. Um, but then, you know, the counterterrorism uh, project just, it, it was, it overshadowed all of these, all these aspirations in 2011. I think that was the idea anyway. Hmm. Give me just a minute here. At the Libertarian Institute, we publish books, real good ones. So far, we've got Will Griggs' No Quarter. Sheldon Richmond's Coming to Palestine and What Social Animals Owe to Each Other, and four of mine, Fool's Errand, Enough Already, The Great Ron Paul, and my brand new one, Hotter Than the Sun, Time to Abolish Nuclear Weapons. And I'm happy to announce that we've just published our managing editor Keith Knight's first one, The Voluntarist Handbook, an excellent collection of essays by the world's greatest libertarian thinkers and writers, including me. Check them all out at libertarianinstitute.org slash books. And for a limited time, signed copies of Enough Already and Hotter Than the Sun are available at scotthorton.org slash books. Hey guys, I had some wasps in my house. So I shot them to death with my trusty Bug Assault 3.0 model with the improved salt reservoir and bar safety. I don't have a deal with them, but the show does earn a kickback every time you get a Bug Assault or anything else you buy from amazon.com by way of the link in the right-hand margin on the front page at scotthorton.org. So keep that in mind. And don't worry about the mess. Your wife will clean it up. Well, so in other words, the surge would have worked for pacifying the Taliban if only they hadn't been going after them at night still. It's entirely possible. Yeah, it's entirely possible. But then that, that, that sort of like unmanaged strategy thing, you know, like the surge had to be um, to, in, in the service of this larger counterinsurgency strategy, which had to end in tribal balance. But I think there was a lot of people who were prosecuting the war who were like, well, you know, we're warfighters. We don't have any interest in, you know, being friends with the enemy and letting them take over in, in a way that's palatable for us. Yeah. Well, in the end, they gave them their whole country back anyway. Yeah, exactly. So, which they could have done all along. Um, and look, I mean, that was the whole thing, though, was, you can't have infantry standing around on street corners being officer-friendly traffic cop if there's still bad guys around everywhere. So that's why you have to have the night raids. And that was the whole excuse for flooding the infantry in there is once we have a bunch of guys on the ground, then we'll finally have the intelligence to know who to get with our night raids or and our drone strikes. Whereas right now, we don't even know who we're getting. And that was yeah. the thing that, that now total lunatic and then war criminal Colonel Michael Flynn had written in his uh, giant uh, PDF file there that was ghostwritten for him about what's wrong with American intelligence gathering in Afghanistan. We don't have enough guys on the ground. But the whole point of flooding the place with the guys so that we know who to night raid and who to kill. So it all went together. And if it's, you know, totally contradictory and self-defeating, then I think that says it all right there, you know. Yeah, exactly. And I would imagine that Kilcullen and, and Flynn would have had uh, would have been at odds and, you know, potentially even had uh, had arguments about this uh, as to what the purpose of the surge was. And, you know, as as you would know, that, you know, the the um, the the cigar submission that Michael Flynn ended up um, ended up offering was very damning of, of night raids and targeting. 
saying that, you know, I don't know how that ended up actually relating to, uh, to, to our, our overall strategy. So, you know, Flynn, I think, is uh, he's definitely proven, as a, proven to be a, a very compromised figure. Yeah. Yeah, on one hand, I was really happy that the Washington Post confirmed everything I said in my book a year and a half after I wrote it. But <laughs> on the other hand, I would have really liked to have had access to all that stuff while I was writing it, too. But then again, oh, it, yeah, it would have taken me a year longer to finish. So who knows? But anyways, I did thank uh, old Craig. What's his name from the post? Craig yeah. Whitlock said, hey, thanks for confirming everything I wrote in Fool's Errand a year and a half ago. But he didn't respond. <laughs> but listen, so let's talk about this this group of especially because there are a lot of veterans who listen to this show, of course. And yeah. um, I bet they'll be interested to hear all about this group of special forces. I mean, it's up to you to make the comparison to the Green Berets or the Rangers or Delta or however you would, uh, which group they're most comparable to, or at least at the start of this, because part of the story is these guys go essentially from like force recon type group to essentially just um, what more like a Navy SEAL or Delta Force team doing night raids and is a whole kind of change of their culture and change of their mission and change of their specialty and everything from yeah. the start of the war all the way through here. Right. I mean, that's, that's, that's one of the reasons why, um, why a lot of these guys spoke, chose to, to speak to me, um, was because they thought that the, the capability, the SAS capability and Australia special forces capability ended up being, um, denuded and, and degraded over the war in Afghanistan because they, they were a specialized force and then towards the end of the war, they were just doing, they were doing these sort of endless direct actions. They weren't even doing night raids at that time. They were just day raids because there was a, a ruling that they, they weren't allowed to do this stuff at night. So they were basically doing what were search and cordon missions, which, um, you know, any, any infantry unit, any decent infantry unit would be able to do that. But previously, they, they had been like a, you know, force recon force where um, surveillance and reconnaissance had been the thing that, that the Australian SAS were, were best at. And part of the reason that they were so so good at that and been trained for that was because we we had this um, strategic posture in Australia, and the idea was that we had um, the the defence of Australia was what the ADF, the Australian Defence Force, was all about. So, you know, if there was going to be an invading force, they were probably going to come through the north of the country. We've got massive amounts of desert um, until you get to the southern cities. So the idea was that the Australian SAS would would go into the north of the country spend a lot of time sort of looking at uh, enemy forces, you know, perhaps doing, um, doing some sabotage operations and things like that and waiting for the Americans to come and liberate us. But, you know, that wasn't something that the SAS necessarily wanted to do was be be because, you know, that's, that's, uh, that's not a particularly kinetic thing to do and it's unlikely that, that they would ever actually end up doing that. So they assumed this counterterrorism role, um, which, which ended up being called the Tactical Assault Group, taking on some close quarter battle um, um, skills and serials. And then that ended up becoming, you know, their, their sort of, you know, their raison d'etre to a certain extent during the, uh, during the war on terror wars. So, you know, they did end up becoming a little bit more like, uh, you know, the SEALs or Delta or someone like that. Um, but, but perhaps, you know, for, for a lot of the operations that they did, they, it was a sort of dumbed down version of that because they, they, one of the problems that the guys sort of told me about was that uh, they should be a force that uh, is ready for a peer-to-peer -peer conflict, but the combat in Afghanistan was clearly not peer-to-peer -peer and uh, the skills were sort of, were sort of disappearing. 
Um, the SAS now, uh, it's, they've gone through a massive amount of upheaval, but my understanding is that they're doing a, a lot more sort of um, grey roll stuff. So they're doing a lot of intelligence gathering. They're working a lot with ACES, which is the Australian Signals Intelligence, uh, Australian Secret Intelligence Service, which is uh, comparable to, to the CIA. And uh, that's probably what they're doing now. But I can imagine that the, the regiment's gone through a, a reset through Afghanistan because so many guys, so, so many skills disappeared, so many guys left, and there was so much PTSD after after the war in Afghanistan. So they, they sort of had to, to reset the regiment. Yeah, well, that's a whole other part of it. In fact, I'll get back to that in a minute because I do want to ask you about that. Um, but first, can we just talk about this JPEL list? Because as you say, that yeah. really is the center of the book. Is And yeah. I think this is really important is the diffusion of responsibility here where these guys essentially are getting a list of, and I love how everybody, of course, it's the military, so everybody that they're targeting to kill is codename koala bear and codename, you know, pile of sand in your hand or whatever. So, but nobody's a human anymore, right? It's, it's, everything is completely like uh, jargonized. Uh, you could say, like, uh, what, like in a technocratic type of way. The computer screen says we're going to kill, you know, um, uh, um, I'm sorry, the word is escaping me. Uh, target. Yeah, target pineapple. And then they just go yeah. and they kill the guy. But like, yeah. they don't know who the hell they're killing at all. And you talk about how they say, geez, lately it seems like, I don't know who we're killing out there. Whereas maybe before they had a little bit more reason to believe that the people they were killing had actually done anything. And again, we're talking about essentially civilian men with guns in their own country defending themselves. That's what makes them guilty enough to be killed anyway. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things that uh, that I talk about in the book is the incentive structure that developed within the Australian Kill Capture Program. Um, so, you know, absent of an, a strategy that actually looked like it was going to work and we were going to win the war, um, you know, you want to have... Uh, within Special Operations Command and any other any other sort of force element, you want to have these goals that you're that you're sort of achieving, especially when you're in a war that goes on over twenty rotations. So the Australian Special Forces had twenty rotations in Afghanistan, and so one of the things that you can sort of look at and use as North Star North Star and say, well, we did this last year and we want to do it better this year, is the number of people who are knocked off on the JPL list. So. One of the ways you can do it is you can find more guys that were on the JPEL list previously. Or another way you can do it is have more guys on the JPEL. And so there were uh, SAS officers who sort of suggested that they came into country and they were like, oh, you know, the quality of JPEL targets are not what they were previously. You know, previously it was like these really dangerous bomb makers who were who were bringing equipment through Kandahar and you know setting off these these giant VBIDs and, and killing people in the towns and the cities. And you know, there's an example in the book of of one of the JPL guys. An officer says, "Well, this guy has four farmers under him. You know, it's it, it costs." millions of dollars to launch a JPL, you know, and there's there's all these man hours and there's, the, you know, these approvals and, you know, we're exposing ourselves as Australian soldiers to to, to potential, um, you know, death or injury to knock off a guy who's got, who's got four, five, you know, who's like the influential guy in your street. I was like, you know, th th this officer just sort of couldn't believe that we were doing that anymore. So, I mean, I think 
military strategists will tell you something like a JPEL is probably useful if it's built into a larger military strategy. But if it just ends up being the only thing that you're doing, and that's sort of the idea that if we kill enough influential people, then we'll end up winning the war, then that's that's definitely a compromised idea. Mm. Right. And I mean, wasn't that the famous cliche even out of Vietnam that body counts were this giant illusion, right? Yeah. That they weren't a mark of progress at all. In fact, yeah. you could say all you're doing is making a matter and matter. And McChrystal himself called it insurgent math. You kill yeah. two, you get 20 more. No, that's right. But, you you know, that's 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 one of the issues with counterinsurgency. And then there's definitely an issue with uh, a, a counterinsurgency in which the strategy is lost because the military is built around uh, goal orientation, you know. And if you don't have, if you have a nebulous goal orientation, you know, so say, for instance, the, the temperature of the populace and, you know, how accepting they are of the government that you're installing, you know, the military is not going to accept that necessarily as a goal. But, you know, people killed on the kill capture, people captured on the kill capture, you know, that 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 is a goal that is quantifiable and makes more sense within a military context. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Gareth Porter won the Martha Gellhorn Award back during the surge. Uh, I forgot which year now, because he showed, based on the military's own numbers, on you know, from the ratio of all the people that they captured and sent off to Bagram, who then were released within two weeks because signifying that they had nothing on them whatsoever, ultimately. Well, that was be the same ratio for the people that they were killing on those night raids too. That yeah. these were people I mean, whose cell phone had been contacted by somebody's cell phone one time and now they're dead and so is anybody at their house or their next door neighbor who looks out the window to see what's going on. That, that was, I mean, there's there's a thing in the book called the, uh, there's a there's an exploration into a thing called the rule of law cell, which was it was an it was um, a, a project that was initiated by the Australian Special Forces because there was lots of Australian soldiers that believed in the mission or wanted to believe in the mission, and they they sort of believed in capturing over killing, and then putting these guys through the Afghan justice system, and then you know potentially them spending some time in jail for you know, trying to trying to, to to set off a bomb in the in their little town, you know. So there were a lot of altruistic guys who sort of went into this thing and believed that it could be done. But the as you said, the Afghan the Afghan justice system either like a lot of those guys that went into Bagram and then were were recycled back into the population, they were guilty. It was just that there was an evidentiary standard that wasn't met or there was corruption along the way, which happened a lot. You know, there was a lot of guys that were captured in these kill capture missions. And then they'd go to the judiciary, there'd be a certain amount of money paid and they'd be recycled back into the battlefield. So then that that became an issue, uh, an incentive issue in the program as well because you were incentivized to kill rather than capture. Because if you capture and then rec recycle the guy um, back in the battlefield, not only are you seeing him again, you know, and thinking that whatever you're doing is, is, is not making any effect, you're also not getting that as a jackpot, which was the metric of success within the Australian Special Forces. Mm -hmm. Because if that guy isn't convicted for a long period of time, then he doesn't count as a jackpot. So then that incentive structure comes in, you know, and there's, there were endless guys that I spoke to who wanted to do the right thing, but the incentive structure was against them. Yeah. Well, you can see how it works. Now, how much longer can I keep you here? I got some more. Yeah, yeah. Come Great. at it. Well, okay. So one thing is what you brought up there about the mental health of these guys. You have a quote from a guy saying, oh, none of us have PTSD here because we're not allowed to. 
Well, that's Ben Robert Smith, the the, the guy who's at the center of that defamation case. Oh, right. Case. Uh-huh. So, and now you say that really was a thing where maybe in the regular army, some guys could get some treatment, but among these special forces guys, the risk of being sent home or somehow demoted or taken out of the crew was high enough and severe enough that they would all just essentially keep that stuff a secret. So then, and I think you even say that the officers knew that that meant a greater percentage of these guys are going to end up killing themselves and having, or, and, or, you know, having much harder lives than if they were taken care of. And so that seems to be like, you know, a real important part of the book here about how true that was for these special forces guys there. It's even more systemic than that. Um, one of the guys that I spoke to in the book was the uh, he was the, the regimental psychologist for the SAS. So you know he was he was sort of you know the chief medical officer to a certain extent for the mental health of, of this regiment. And when they started deploying into Afghanistan, there's there's a health command which I'm sure there is in the Australian military uh, in the American military as well, which basically is in charge of of, of the, the medical management of, of these forces. So Australian, Australian Joint Health Command had had these rulings that they, they, they recognised that PTSD was a significant issue. And so they had to screen for guys with PTSD. And if it looked like you were going to present symptoms with, with PTSD, then you were going to be taken out of your unit and that it was going to be managed and make sure that what they wanted to have actually was, was levels of PTSD that were, that were near zero. And so this psychologist was was spending time with um, with the commanding officers, the Special Operations Command, and saying, "Well, we can't do this, you know, because PTSD is going to be a byproduct of what we do, and fighting the war is the thing that we want to do, you know, like managing our guys is one of the things that we do, but our north star is fighting the war. So what do we do? Well, you can get waivers and you can get these sort of command command rulings within um, within these these units if if you're in a time of war. So you can just sort of basically sign off on um, you can have a veto over these joint health command rulings. So that's essentially what they did. So not only do they have low levels of PTSD within Special Operations Command and the SAS, they had zero PTSD for a period of time. So these guys were coming back to Afghanistan. They weren't reporting any of the PTSD through to Joint Health Command. Everybody's happy because Joint Health Command's not having to deal with it. You know, the ADF brass, uh, uh, they don't have a PTSD issue, but all the pressure ends up being on these soldiers who keep redeploying and are not getting treatment. Um, and there was a soldier who, who I spent some time with in a book previously, and in his case is, is sort of mentioned in this book, where he was hospitalised twice for PTSD uh, the command knew it, but they kept giving him waivers, and then he ended up taking his own life when uh, when he came back after his second deployment after his uh, his his stint in hospital. So, you know, it, it's reasonable to assume that that these guys knew that this PTSD iceberg was going to come hit the regiment, but they just wanted to, you know, to to keep the party going. They had to keep the party going because that's what that's what the Americans wanted. Yeah. Well. Yeah. There's an important incentive right there, and I think you say in here that. Essentially, the guys in there had such problems that if they were honest about it, it would have shut down the whole unit or the whole brigade yeah. or whichever size thing. It would have ended the special forces mission there. I mean, it would have ended the mission. It would have it wouldn't have ended the the, the you know the regiment. It, there obviously would have been enough guys that would have been okay. But but just they had 
it's such a small um, it's such a small part of the Australian military, or it was such a small part of the Australian military, that there were only so many guys that were that were sort of beret qualified to go into Afghanistan. And so they had to keep giving these waivers to make sure that they could get this quorum of guys so they could go over and keep these rotations going. Yeah. All right. Now, so you really have a lot of these stories in here, and I know that um, information is limited, and in a lot of places you're quoting other people's testimony and not taking yep. a judgment on exactly what happened in some of these. But uh, I wish you would tell the story about or the stories of some of these farmers who've been killed some of these women and children and babies blown up and the uh, the events at Whiskey 108 with the rookie and all these things. I think people need to kind of hear about what it is we're talking about. You know, kind of imagine, maybe not in your town, but on the outskirts of your town, something like this going on, a foreign power. And, well, never even mind that. Just what's the truth about what happened in Afghanistan, you know? Yeah, well, I mean... Whiskey 108 is probably going to be the place where that uh, that defamation case is going to be um, is going to be decided. So it was, uh, I think it was 2009 or 2010. Uh, it was the Australian regular infantry were fighting with some local insurgents in a place called Darafshan, um, and Darafshan was a place that was it was really important for the for the Australian mission because. It was a place that was only about 10 or 15 kilometres, which is, you know, sort of eight miles away from the centre of where the uh, the base was and where the town was. Tarankut is the uh, the capital of Oruzgan. But then sort of eight miles north, there's this area that's, um, that's, that's a sort of insurgent area, not necessarily because it's, you know, it would be called a Taliban hotspot, but because it's a place where um, there's been long enmity between Jan Muhammad and Matiullah Khan, who were the warlords that we decided to partner with, and the tribes over there in the Darafshan area. And this is over water capture. They, you know, these, these tribes, the Popolzai and the, 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 the Norzai and the, the tribes that were up in Darafshan, you know, they were fighting over, over water capture and agriculture for generations, you know. So then, you know, we have this sort of Taliban versus Australia and America war, and it becomes overlaid to this, this sort of long tribal war that's been going on. So there's a fight going on in Darafshan between the Australian regular infantry who are trying to do reconstruction in that area. They're really trying. There's a real effort to try and bring them into the fold and give them reconstruction projects and things like that. Um, so there's a fight going on and, uh, you know, there's a Navy SEAL who, who drops a bomb on a building there in, in one of the areas in Darafshan. <clears throat> and then the SAS are sent in to go and sort of, like, clean things up. And they go in there um, and... There may or may not have been murders, uh, depending on, on where you fall on this uh, on this defamation case. So the allegation is that uh, not only were there murders of these guys that came out of um, came out of a, a tunnel where there was a cache of weapons. That's it's not contested that there was this tunnel. You know, there was a tunnel. There was a cache of weapons. They were sort of drawn out, um, and then the allegation was that the Australian SAS had uh, you know sort of I guess a sort of soft policy within this is the allegation. It's not. It's not proven that uh, they had to blood the rookies. So the rookies had to start with a kill. If they hadn't got a kill in combat, then they'd take a prisoner and then execute them. This is the allegation. Um, and so, at the centre of this defamation case is there's a lot of Australian SAS soldiers who basically said, "I saw this. I saw one of these executions. You know." Um, 
there's, they all have little snippets of information. They all actually have different um, testimony as well as to what happened. But then there's all this testimony on the other side saying, well, it didn't happen. And the reason why they've fabricated this testimony is because they're jealous about Ben Robert Smith getting the Victoria Cross. So that's, that's at the centre. This is, this is the, uh, the allegation that's got the greatest amount of testimony on either side of, of, this, uh, of, this, um, of this allegation. So, you know, watch this space and we'll, we'll see how it rules. Yeah. Uh, the blooding, that's what they call it, right? Yeah. Yeah, the, the initiation, sort of the hazing for the new guy. You got to kill an innocent guy. I talked about this with uh, with Braden, and then I'm sorry, I forget the name of this other journalist that I interviewed about this stuff. So they're Australian journalist who talked about that as well. Perhaps Mark Willisie. Uh, I'm sorry, I got what Biden's got. Yeah, I've done good. six thousand of these. That's my excuse. Oh, yeah. I really have. So everybody, leave yeah. me alone. Um, all right. Well, the, the, the interesting thing about, about those killings at Whiskey 108, though, is that they're not innocents. You know, they were guys who were definitely involved in the insurgency. You know, whether you believe that you have a right to protect your home or not, you know, and that makes you innocent, you know, so be it. But, but these guys were the guys that were pulled out of this tunnel. And so they probably could have been elevated to the JPL given time and, and intelligence. So... That, that is the, the sort of murky grey area in the, Austra the Australian Special Forces operations is like, you know, these killings would be characterised as these, as these murders and they definitely are if, it's, if these allegations are proven that they're murders. You know, it's undoubted that they're murders. But they're not a million miles away from what we were, what we were, what we were doing legally as well. You know, the, the legal aspect of it and the moral and ethical aspect of it are, are, are at odds and that's one of the things that I wanted to sort of um, to, to put through in the book. Yeah. All right. Now, um, if you could, at the end here, let's talk about Australia's ignominious defeat and retreat from Afghanistan before America's green on blue attacks all the way out the door, huh? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that was that that, that was how you would sort of characterize the end of the of, of the Australian war. You know, all of these allegations of murder, sorry, most of these allegations of murder happened in 2012 or 2013, which is when the Australians were leaving. And that's when, um, uh, that's when Braden was, was operating and, um, and was in that mission that, uh, that, that, that you spoke about. Um, and then that was sort of at the end of the war, you know. So to a certain extent, Uruzgan had been brought to heel in a very sort of uh, a very violent way. Um, but then the Taliban were prosecuting these green on blue attacks or they were promoting these green on blue attacks or these green and blue attacks were, were just organically happening. And it was, it, you know, it was a little bit different to um, the IED attacks, the suicide bombing attacks and things like that because they couldn't really be, be um, predicted. And so from a from a strategic perspective it was very difficult to understand uh, to, to figure out what to do with these green and blue attacks um, and another one of the allegations in this defamation case is that uh, the Australian SAS went to try and find one of the guys who'd been involved in one of these green or blue attacks and then murdered um, a number of Australian soldiers they didn't find him but then there was allegations of murder in the place where they had they know that this guy had been. So one of the aspects of this defamation case, the allegation that perhaps 
the SAS were, were, were very angry about this green on blue attack that had happened, that they'd sheltered this guy and that perhaps there were murders afterwards. So um, that's, that's one of the things that will be, be borne out with this, uh, with this ruling. All right. Well, listen, thanks very much, Ben. I won't keep you any longer, but I really enjoyed your book and I really appreciate your time on the show. I hope people will take a look at this thing. Find, fix and finish by Ben McKelvey. Thanks again. Scott, it was awesome to talk to you. It's always great to, to talk to someone who really knows their shit and also loves their skateboarding. So uh, hopefully we'll see you down here in Bondi sometime soon. Man, wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Uh, you know what? I've been saving up those miles. <laughs> hey, Come Tim. over here, man. We're coming into summer. Hey, old Australian friend Tim, you listening? Let's see if maybe we work something out. All yeah. Right, anyway. Well, well, send me a message if you come down. I'll take you out for a beer. Okay, great, man. Have a good one, Ben. Really appreciate you. This Gordon. Thank, thank, thank you. All right, you guys. Again, the book is Find, Fix, Finish by Ben McKelvey. The Scott Horton Show and Anti-War Radio can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. APSradio.com antiwar.com, scotthorton.org, and libertarianinstitute.org.